following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, let's talk about Jude again. The title of today's message is that the wilderness displays our worship. So first sermon, as we looked at the beginning of Jude, Jude reminds us that we're called by God's kindness, we're kept in God's peace, and we're beloved in God's love. It's a great start. That's like the happy verse to start, and there's a happy verse at the end, and everything else in between there is kind of grim. So the second sermon was that lawlessness was apparently appealing to this particular audience. Uh, they had this desire, it seems, not to live within God's boundaries. False teachers show up and go, listen, you can kind of do what you've always wanted to do, and they followed them. So Jude is pointing out this problem, and then he says it's not going to end well. So the third sermon was three examples of how God punishes disobedience. And Jude gives three examples that his Jewish audience would have been very familiar with. Remember when the Lord saved our ancestors from the land in Egypt. The Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And God has kept the rebellious heavenly messengers bound and chained in utter darkness, shadowy gloom, until the time when his judgment arrives, because they failed to keep their rightful positions and abandoned their appointed realms. Sodom and Gomorrah and all their neighbors were defeated by their own sexual perversions as they pursued the strange and unnatural impulses of the flesh. So I pointed out last week, I think we can kind of break this down into three categories. And honestly, these three categories, they might actually overlap, but there's a focus in each one of these. In Israel, you see spiritual self-destruction through idolatry. With the angels, you see what I called civil self-destruction through lawlessness, breaking the order of authority. And then with Sodom and Gomorrah, you see personal self-destruction through license, which is a very clear thing Jude was calling out that these false teachers were introducing. So we covered the last two last week. Today we're going to focus on Israel's spiritual self-destruction through unbelief and idolatry. I was talking uh, with a couple people who are here to make this happen this morning before the service. Just thinking that Jude's, Jude's just a grim book. Um, yeah, first verse is like, hey, Jesus has called you and kept you and loves you. It's amazing. And the last verse is, now, to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before the throne of God. And in between those two verses, uh, Jude just brings it like... You guys, you got to know this stuff, and it's a really judgy book. Like it talks about the judgment of God over and over. Jude is not going to let his audience off the hook that actions have consequences. God takes disobedience and unbelief seriously. And I was very conscious this week, prepping to talk about this, that I, I find myself wanting to give this a nice, happy, upbeat ending and I'm just going to give you a warning this morning, this morning. There's not really a nice, happy, upbeat ending to the sermon this morning. There is at the end of the book of Jude, because Jude will remind us that we serve a God who is amazing. He's able to keep us from falling and present us, I believe he says, unstained before the throne of God, which is just a miraculous gift of salvation and grace. But between those two points, the first verse and the last verse, Jude is pretty content just to let the seriousness of this settle in. So one of my goals is I want the seriousness of God's judgment to settle in this morning. Uh, okay, so with that in mind, 
The example I'm talking about today, which is the children of Israel in, the, in e, leaving Egypt and going into the wilderness, it doesn't get talked about much. When I was doing research for this sermon, I was looking up uh, sermons for these examples. I like to hear how other people have approached it. I like to read what other commentators are saying. And here's what I found. The example with the angels and the examples with Sodom and Gomorrah, I found tons of material. I literally didn't find one sermon, like standalone sermon, talking about the example of the children of Israel leaving Egypt and then perishing in the wilderness. And it kind of surprised me, honestly, but it made me start to wonder, uh, I wonder if that one just hits closer to home, because like one is about angels, and A, we're not angels, so that's kind of safely at a distance, and we like talking about angels. And then the second one with Sodom and Gomorrah, those were distant relatives of the Israelites, but it wasn't the Israelites, it wasn't the people of God, so that was still kind of at a safe distance. But this example hits really close to home. I mean, this is an example about God's people. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 12. I just want to give you one other writer in the New Testament who talks about the same incident. He has a little bit of a different focus, but it's the same idea. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. It's the cloud that was leading them. The sea is the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Note, the spiritual food is probably manna. I mean, really, Paul is just referencing all these aspects of the story. But he notes that this group drank from the spiritual rock, which was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, now, these things occurred, says Paul, as examples, just like Jude is using them, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then he gives four examples. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That's about the golden calf. We're going to come back to that. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did. They were killed by snakes. Don't grumble as some of them did. They were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written down as warnings. Once again, Paul's pointing to it for the same reason Jude did. They're warnings for us uh, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. I think that's just kind of a reference to the new covenant with Jesus. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So this example, this is about people God saved from bondage. He led them with signs and wonders. The people drank from the spiritual rock, which was Christ. That's the living water. And then they rejected him, and they pursued other gods. And they kept asking for leaders other than Moses because they wanted a leader who would take them back to Egypt instead of the promised land. And God forgives them after the golden calf incident. It's actually an interesting story as Moses kind of beseeches on behalf of the people. But then they show up at Canaan and they repeat almost the precise same pattern just without an idol. These spies go into the land. They bring back this report like, uh, guys, this is too hard. 
Uh, this land was a bad gift. It's a bad idea. And most of the people go, oh, all right, I don't know what God's doing, but let's elect a leader who's going to take us back to Egypt again. And that's after they literally were at the border of the promised land. And this is about a group of people. They're descendants of Abraham. And God had said, I have a plan to bless the world through all of you. And at this point, they're going, you know what? Um, I don't, really don't care. Egypt looks good. Canaan looks really daunting. So this is about God's people pushing God and his authority away and then suffering the consequences of rebellious unbelief. Uh, so, yeah, that's really close to home. Uh, in fact, if, if I were to make a list, and I did that you're going to see in a second, of how this applies to us today, think about these parallels and recognize we're talking about God's covenant people under the old covenant, something that happened to them, but I think those stories are told for our good, like Paul and Jude point out. We're now new covenant people, but let's look at the parallel. First of all, Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament, the people of God were Israel, New Testament, or New Covenant, it's the church. In the Old Testament, we see an experience of miraculous salvation, what's called the Passover, where the judgment of God was coming, blood is on the doorpost of the homes, and God's judgment passes over. Now in the New Covenant, the blood is on the doorposts of our hearts, and God's judgment passes over. Uh, the Israelites were saved from slavery and bondage in Egypt. We are slaves from slavery and bondage to sin and to death. They headed toward a land of promise called Canaan. We're heading toward a land of promise that Jesus refers to as the kingdom of God. They hit a wilderness. For them, that was a desert. For us, frankly, I think it's life. Uh, uh, there's just a lot of things that happen in life that are wilderness experiences, times when it's hard. And then they're tempted by idols. For them, it was the golden calf. For us, it's what we call American idols, not the show, but these things that compete for our hearts. And I'm going to talk about that more later. And then they demanded a leader who would take them there. In this case, they reject Moses and try to find a different leader to take them. Our temptation is to reject where the church would guide us and to go, no, I like the voices and culture better. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. And what happens is they're denied the promised land. And for them, that was Canaan. And for us, it's God's kingdom. Now, I'm going to unpack all of that in a little bit, but let me just address one question that arises. Uh, did the wilderness display their worship in the sense that it revealed that they never truly worshiped Yahweh? Or does it re reveal their worship in that this reminds us that even people who are close to Christ can be tempted by idols and fall away? That's not where I'm going with the sermon this morning. That's for the Calvinists and Arminius to have a, um, some type of battle over. Uh, my point this morning is that the text is clear that rebellious disbelief among the people of God is a huge problem. And that's close to home, and I think it's supposed to unsettle us. Not unsettle us such that we never can resettle, but it, it's meant to upend us and cause us to rethink things and settle closer to God when we're done. So Jude tells his audience that their ancestors were denied the land and they died in the wilderness because of rebellious unbelief. Paul says they had their hearts set on evil. Even those who drank of this spiritual water of Christ had their hearts set on evil and he warns that you got to watch out. You might think you're standing tall, but there's a danger that you will fall away. Uh, back to Jude then again. 
to him who is able to keep you from falling. Paul and Jude interact interestingly here. But unbelief and idolatry have devastating consequences. So let's talk about the wilderness. Here's my primary point this morning. The wilderness displays our worship because the wilderness will reveal what's in our hearts. So I have pictures of my family on the wall at home. Um, AJ and Kim live down in Grand Rapids. Uh, Braden is away at college a lot. Um, my mom and one of my sisters live in Texas, and my other sister lives in Alabama, and they're with their families. And when I'm lonely, when I miss them, when I'm experiencing kind of a relational wilderness, my eyes are drawn to those pictures because the pictures are a symbol or an image of something that's near and dear to my heart. And I wonder where our eyes go when we're in the wilderness. What image draws our eyes and reflects the desires of our heart? Because for the Israelites, it was a golden calf. It was an Egyptian god. They wanted something in front of them that symbolized the thing that was apparently what they were going to give their heart and soul to. And in a weird kind of side note, as they left Egypt, they would have traveled past a mine that the Egyptians mined, that makes sense, where they got the materials with which they built their idols. And odds are really good that some of the Israelites, if not many of the Israelites in this group, had slaved in that mine to help build the idol that they are now replicating. So it's remarkable how quickly they forgot the whole build bricks without straw things and kill your male babies and went back to there was something about Egypt that appealed to them. And it seems that the reason was they were cared for. Uh, and by cared for, their bellies were full. Uh, and this isn't just uh, me making this up. I'll get to some verses here in a second. And in fact, I skipped those verses, so I don't know if I uh, messed things up in the booth, but we read in Exodus and Numbers the very specific reason they wanted to go back. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, we remember the fish which we ate in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And I have some questions about their list, frankly. But... The two times scripture tells us with specific words what it was that made them want to go back to Egypt, it appears to simply be that their bellies were full. Uh, they were slaves. Pharaoh was trying to kill their firstborn males. Their life was not a good life in so many ways, but they got a little hungry. And their appetites were not fulfilled. And like I said, the two-time scripture gives us language from all of their grumbling and complaining. It very specifically has to do with food. And God doesn't allow them to enter the land of promise because that was a land for people who worshiped Yahweh. And they're not worshiping Yahweh. They're chasing after other gods. And amazingly, God stays with them and with Moses. I mean, his presence is in the tabernacle, but God stays with them as they wander in the wilderness and die. Jude says they were destroyed. This means at minimum that they just died never having experienced the promised land. And they were a mess the whole time. If you read this saga, it's kind of sad. They were a mess the whole time. They're just chafing at the demands of God. You find out who you worship in the wilderness. So the Bible over and over, the wilderness is a place of testing. 
40 days in the wilderness just means a long time of testing. And sometimes that literally happened in the wilderness, but it meant so much more to them than simply that kind of place. When the Old Testament prophets talk about the coming age when kind of the kingdom of God is inaugurated on earth, they say things like, hey, there'll finally be roads in the wilderness. These wild animals like ostriches and owls and jackals, uh, they'll finally be tamed. They'll get along with each other and we'll get along with them. Uh, some of the prophets say eventually stuff will grow there, like this is a barren place. John the Baptist talks, is talked about as the voice crying in the wilderness as he prepared the way for the Lord. And I suspect that has a dual meaning. He did live in the wilderness with another weird diet. Um, but he was also, I think, speaking into the wilderness of people's spiritual lives. So the wilderness is always a place of testing. And here's what happens when we're tested. We find out who we are in the wilderness. In fact, we'll find out whose we are in the wilderness because the wilderness displays our worship. Uh, I'd say right now that a wilderness we're experiencing is the societal and personal upheaval that comes with the coronavirus. In biblical terms, we're in our 40 days in the wilderness, and I'm, I'm hoping we're at day 39, but I don't know. Our comfort has been upended. Our mobility has been constrained. Our income has been disrupted. Our health has become uncertain, not just because of the virus, uh, but because of the, the disruption of access to health care in general. Our friendships are strained. Our church life is upended. Our autonomy has been taken away. So that's one kind of wilderness. But this wilderness, this experience isn't new because it doesn't have to happen at a societal or global level. It happens in our lives all the time, right? This is, we have health wildernesses. It could be marriage, could be jobs, could be friendships, could be spiritual wandering, uh, could be seasons of grief or depression, could be the loss that comes with death, could be loss of purpose, it, it could be living in an American Egypt that's just full of idols and things that fill our bellies that make us want to go back, and that's its own kind of challenge. So we know what wildernesses are. We experience them in our personal life all the time. It just so happens right now we're experiencing, um, for us at least, a new kind of societal wilderness time of testing. And I trying to think how to phrase this, but I think with the, um, the demonstrations and the riots and what's been happening in this last week, um, it's reminding us that for many people in the United States, there's been an, another kind of wilderness experience that has to do with uh, injustice and racism that's been a very real part of people's lives um, for decades, if not centuries, right? So we know what wildernesses are. And we find out who we are in the wilderness because we find out whose we are in the wilderness because our worship is displayed in the wilderness. So I have a couple questions for us in our wilderness times. And this could be applied now, very specifically our societal wilderness, what's going on with the disruption to our lives, the hardship. But this could also be a time for reflection when we've had the wilderness experiences that are personal in our own lives. I have five questions. 
do we move toward God or away from God when we're in the wilderness? That can be a vague question. You know, Anthony, are you talking about feelings? Are you talking, uh, what are you talking about? Well, I'll give you two practical things. One, I think, we can see that we are moving toward God when we move toward God's people. And the second is that we'll move toward God's word. That can also be a sign that we're moving away from God during wilderness times if we withdraw from God's people and we withdraw from God's word. So I guess one question I have is, what's been our momentum the last three months? What's been our trajectory? Has the disruption brought by COVID-19, has it moved us toward God's people and toward God's word? This is where I, this is where I add a challenge to get involved with home church. Are we moving toward God's people and moving deeper into God's word to give us truth, stability, remind us of the goodness and grace and presence of God, all those types of things? Or are we actually withdrawing and we're moving away? Question number two, do we really believe God's grace is sufficient or not? Uh, in other words, do we believe that no matter what is happening that is disrupting our lives right now, do we believe that the fact that God offers salvation to us through Christ as an act of grace, is that enough to stabilize us? Is that enough of a foundation for us, or do we need more? Do we need God to show up on our terms and build the foundation we want to see built? I mean, Paul is clear about this. In the midst of his thorn in the flesh issue, God let him keep it because God wanted it to be clear to him, my grace is sufficient for you. So in the wilderness, we find out, is God's presence, is God's grace sufficient for us? The Israelites were tested, and, and God, God's presence was manifested to them in ways that uh, I think we tend to think, if I had a pillar of cloud telling me where to go every day, uh, and I had food falling from heaven, I, mean, I, could go through these, I could go through all these things, I think we tend to think, like, I'm in. Uh, and the Israelites weren't. That was not sufficient. God's presence was not sufficient for them. And so I'm just, I'm just curious, is God's grace sufficient for us now or do we expect God to show up on our terms? Are we finding peace and stability and comfort in the foundation of Christ and what his word reveals to us? Or do we need more? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he take everything from me, yet will I trust him. Though he disrupt my church and my job and my autonomy and my belly, yet, yet will I trust him. The wilderness displays our worship. Third question, are we turning to God for our primary peace and comfort or to something else or someone else? So I'm not sure what meat pots and garlic, what the equivalent are for us today. Um, bacon maybe for meat pots, and I do like garlic. But I do know this, our bellies, and by that I mean our appetites, our flesh, our desires, they're either going to drive us toward prayer and surrender and drive us to God, so back to is God's grace sufficient enough, 
or it's going to push us to look for other leaders, other voices who will take us to the land where we think our bellies will be full and we'll be satisfied. So if we can get over the fact, I don't know about you, I want to giggle every time I say the word belly, because I think belly is a funny word. But if we could just think of that as appetites, desires, drives, kind of our, um, what Jude would describe as this instinctive, almost animal nature to us, which is what led the false teachers and what drove the false teachers. Uh, are we following the voice of God in terms of we want the spiritual food and drink that God offers us to solve our deepest desires and to, to feed and care for us in the deepest places? Or are we looking around going, you know what, I'd like a leader who takes me back over there, and I know that's not what God's plan is, but that really fills me up. That's tasty. I really like that. And, and I'll be honest, my creativity, uh, I struggled with my creativity this week. I was hoping to have a bunch of practical examples for that, but this is where you get to talk with your home church groups, or we can do it when we Zoom for Message Plus. What does that look like? What are the, th what are the voices, the things that keep drawing us back to the meat pots of Egypt? It's in spite of there being spiritually given food in front of us that is sufficient for us which leads right into my fourth question. What authorities do we gravitate toward? Do we like kingdom voices or empire voices? So the Israelites kept asking for a leader that was not Moses because Moses kept saying, oh, we're following God. And they were like, yeah, okay, anybody else? Kind of casting around for someone to take them somewhere else, not somewhere better. In fact, I, I'm still kind of astonished by how quickly they forgot what life in Egypt was like. But then, frankly, how quickly do we forget what life was like when we give ourselves to sin and to bondage? Uh, how easily do we forget what, what that was? But nonetheless, they wanted a different voice. So what orders our thoughts first on how we ought to live right now? What's the primary voices in our life? Are the primary voices coming from Scripture, from church leaders, and I, I don't mean specifically me. I mean, um, by church leaders, I mean what's happened in church history, church tradition, the teachings of scriptures, um, the voices of people in the kingdom of God who are faithful to God. Are those the voices that we're allowing to lead us, just like Moses was a spokesperson? Or are we turning to political and economic leaders? Are we filled with our Bibles or with our favorite website? Barna just did a poll, and they found that 48% of Christians had not watched any church online in the last four weeks. Almost half of self-identified Christians in the United States have not watched an online sermon in the last month. Now, I don't know what all the details were in that study. The impression I get is that their research revealed that people who are self-proclaiming Christians are not taking the time to pursue Christian teaching to fill their minds right now. And dear God, if we need any kind of teaching to fill our minds right now, it's biblical teaching. Um, raise your hand if you think we live in confusing times. If I raise both of them, that I feel it doubly. Okay, the voices that ought to be primary voices informing us and leading us places 
are kingdom voices, not empire voices. And it's not as if empire voices don't have good things to say. Truth of all kinds is available to everybody. God in his grace makes truth available to the world. But those are secondary voices, or they ought to be in a Christian's life. Kingdom voices, kingdom voices, that's what ought to be informing our hearts and minds. That's where we start. And then finally, fifth question, are we locking in on Jesus and what Jude called righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Or are we building an idol from the plunders of Egypt for which we might secretly be longing? In other words, as, as we are lifting our eyes up to look at what motivates us, are we looking at the motivation of life in the kingdom or are we looking at the motivation of, um, I could get this from my empire? Billy Graham was once asked about American idols and he said, well, anything can become an idol to us. It's something we put in the place of God. Some people, for example, make material success and the pursuit of money, their goal in life, and they worship them with just as much devotion as someone might an idol made of stone. Others make beauty or prestige their goal, and these become idols because they put them first in their lives. Still others pursue entertainment or sexual thrills or drugs or alcohol, and these become their idols. Um, I didn't write this down, but I was thinking of this right before the sermon, and I, I feel like it needs to be said, so I'm going to give it a shot. Give me a second here to organize thoughts in my head. Are we more unsettled that, that church fellowship has not gotten back to where it was or that our gym has not yet opened? That might tell us something about where we struggle in the areas of idols. Are we more unsettled that our church fellowship is not yet back to where it was or that our favorite restaurant is not yet open? Because that might tell us something about our idols. Are we more unsettled that church fellowship is not yet back where it was or that we can't shop in a business in the way that we want to shop in a business or that a business isn't open that we want to be open? That might tell us something. Where are we looking? What are we longing for? We're finding out whose we are. And really, this brings us back to three weeks ago. What do we want? What do we believe can give us what we're asking for right now? That's a question of whose are we? Because the wilderness reveals our worship. See, Jude's showing the result of those who went their own way which goes back to language of the book of Judges where people did what was right in their own eyes, which goes back to Genesis where Satan says, listen, you can be like God and decide what's right and wrong. This, this is the, the temptation, the pitfall that's as old as humanity. It's as old as humanity. And we see at least one clear consequence of this unbelief that's revealed by our idolatry and our rebelliousness, and that is we forfeit the land of promise. Uh, I've got two more pages of notes that we're not going to get to today. Uh, I really wanted to get, this is sound weird to say, I really wanted to get to the judgment part because I've been promising that for a couple weeks, uh, and I know you were all looking forward to that, talking about judgment with great anticipation. 
Uh, still setting the stage in some ways. Uh, so we're going to stop here today. That's going to start us off next week. But this is the table that has been set that I want us to, I want us to linger in this. Like I said, Jude's book is bookended. Uh, uplifting start, promising end, but Jude is content to settle into the seriousness of what he's talking about. So I'm, I think I'm asking that we settle into the seriousness of this. What is happening in our lives if grumbling and rebellion and disbelief in this wilderness time is revealing that there's something broken in our worship, that we're not looking to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, and we're not actually embracing the, the fact that his grace is enough, that his presence is sufficient, that he cares for us, that he has given us all we need for life and godliness, just in Christ alone. Are we listening to these other voices? Are we looking back toward Egypt? Are, are we missing what God is offering us and that's right in front of us? Because Jude and Paul both say, listen, if that's what's happening, there will be consequences. We will reap what we sow. And next week, God willing, <laughs> we're going to talk more specifically about the ways in which God has expressed his judgment throughout biblical history and how that can inform our understanding of uh, how God works in the world in that particular way. But we're going to have to put that off until next week. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.